it's it's always a, a a challenge, but a great blessing to to hear somebody say that they appreciate what you do uh, in the Lord, and that's that's always nice to hear. But there's only one whose lips I want to hear it from. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's, as much as I like you, John, you don't count. <laughs> Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. And we'll look to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we again come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, praising you and thanking you for this opportunity to look into your word, to consider it, to hopefully understand it and apply it to our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and work it in our, the very fiber of our beings so that we might leave here changed, uh, determined, filled with the Holy Spirit, and determined that whatever we can do to serve you, to stand up for you in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we sh uh, shine as lights, that we would brighten this area uh, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Teach us by your Spirit. Amen. Okay, last Sunday, Pastor uh, addressed the idea that God can be angry. It's somewhat foreign to many in our day and age. Uh, we've built up this, uh, our culture particularly has built up really what amounts to be an idolatrous understanding of God that says that he's, he's all love and you end up an un, with an understanding of God as just being this uh, quivering mass of emotion, spineless emotion. That's not the God of the Bible. God is love. God is gracious. I mean, the very fact that we're still here on this earth when we examine our lives and look at, at our own history, is testament to the fact of the, of the long-suffering and the grace of God. But at the same time, God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. And will not at all acquit the wicked. There has to be balance. And again, just, just as a reminder, there's nothing necessarily wrong with anger. Well, more often than not, when we exercise our anger, it's not based on uh, the zeal of the Lord. For the, as the scripture says about the Lord Jesus, as he cleansed the temple, the zeal of the Lord, you know, the zeal of the Lord's health has eaten me up. That's what motivated the Lord Jesus. 
Yet, the Lord, who cannot sin, can exercise anger with perfect motives, in, a, in perfect justice, and to a perfectly measured extent. His anger. Somebody said, and, and I sort of like this, I think it might be a little too sanitized when they're trying to define the anger of God. They say that the anger, God's anger is his settled disposition to, to destroy sin. And that has some, some good aspects to it. The one thing I don't care about it is it's sort of, like I said, it's sanitized a little bit too much because there's real emotion when God acts against, against sin, there is real anger there. It's not merely a settled determination. It's wrath. It's an unleashed torment, or torrent, I should say, of, of God's emotion against that sin. And like Pastor pointed out, you need look no further than the cross to see the holiness and the justice and the love and the compassion of God intersecting. Just consider for a moment Every single one of my sins and every single one of your sins being imputed to Christ and the outraged wrath of God against those sins pouring itself out in, in unmixed fury on the person of the Lord Jesus. Without diminution, because when he had the opportunity to take the mixture to deaden the pain. He refused it. He would not. He refused to deaden his sensitivity to our sin and to the wrath of God. He bore that to the dregs. But at any rate... God has in the past and will in the future exercise judgment against this world. In 2 Peter 2.5, Peter uses the historical account of the flood as a warning that God will again judge the world. In the context, uh, Paul, or Peter is talking about God judging and he says, in 2.5, he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we'll talk a little bit more about that flood in a little bit. But at this point, what I, I don't want so much to want to focus on the flood, although we'll talk a little bit about it. But what we want to explore today is ask ourselves... What are the conditions that, that bring God to such a cataclysmic action? And maybe more importantly, do I hold any responsibility in bringing about those conditions? 
Or can I look down my long nose at, at those wicked sinners out there and point my, my pointy fingers at them and say, huh, you're getting what you deserve, uh-huh. Oh, really? Because, just like the title of this sermon says, the flood last time, the fire next time. God has judged, and God will yet judge. And are we, the question we want to ask, are we contributing to the conditions that brought about, that will bring about God's judgment? We want to ask ourselves that. Well, what are the steps that brought about the judgment? If you, again, in Genesis chapter 6, we read this, and, and I'm going to be switching back and forth between the King James and the, and, uh, uh, the, the more modern version here. Uh, I have it memorized in the King James, but uh, uh, I'm reading it here out of, out of, out of this the new, newer version. But it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took as their wives any that they chose. What in reality this verse is doing is it's revealing the first step in the revolt that led to God's judgment on the earth. Really, this verse stretches back to Genesis chapter 3 and spans the time to actually Genesis chapter 6, which is approximately 1,500 years, a little bit over 1,500 years. Now, to properly interpret this passage, we have to look at the context and see the entire thrust of chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, and how they all fit together. In chapter 4, we have a, a panorama of the, ver of the descendants of Cain. And it describes their action, and it ends up dis discussing an individual named Lamech, who is the first recorded bigamist and murderer. Well, he's not the first recorded murderer, but he was a murderer who bragged about it to his wives. And claim that if God protected Cain, then he should be protected seven times more than Cain. Because he was that much more important. Which, by the way, I'm just going to throw this in. If you've ever wondered about the, the length of the ages of people in that day and age... This is an indication of the great age of the people because how much do you know about your great-great-great-grandfather? But Lamech knew very well what was happening to Cain because quite possibly Cain was still alive when Lamech was, was old enough to be Married and, uh, to two wives. Nevertheless, that's an aside. 
You won't be charged for that. In chapter 5, however, we have uh, a picture of the descendants of Seth, and we also have it in the form of a very strict, the, very, the strictest genealogy in the entire Bible. So strict that there's no way you can put any other ages or time frames within this, this uh, genealogy. It, in fact, it pinpoints that there were 1,656 years from the beginning of, of the creation to the beginning of the flood. Which is why I came up with just over 1,500 years from, from the fall to this point, because if you subtract 120 years from 1,656, you get a little bit over 1,500 years. Chapter 6 begins to bring those two chapters together, as we'll see in a little bit. So you have the thrust of ungodly people in chapter 4, the thrust of godly descendants of Seth in chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, they're bringing them together. Now all too often when interpreting this passage, commentators get hung up on who the sons of God are were in verse 2. Many commentators referring to Job chapter uh, 1 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 1, and chapter 38 verse 7, which uses the phrase sons of God, many commentators say, well, it's obvious these were, these were angels, because in, in Job it's obviously referring to angels. And these then evidently fell, and they cohabited with human women, and that's what produced the, the giants. Well, there are a number of problems with this idea. The first one being, would a fallen angel still be considered a son of God? Angels are a completely different created order than humans. They were all created at one time. They were all individually responsible for their actions and their decisions to God. And when they rejected the Lord and followed Satan, their will was set, as well as their destiny. So at that point, in my way of thinking anyway, they ceased to be sons of God when they rebelled against God. Secondly, when God created creatures, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the phrase of reproducing after their kind is repeated time after time after time. When, a when God created creatures to reproduce, they reproduce after their kind. Well, humans and angels are two completely different created kinds. So they cannot reproduce together. Also, the Lord Jesus, in talking about the resurrection, states that 
that in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither male nor female, because remember in the context we're talking about arranged marriages. So you have the women, we're told, okay, this is the guy you're going to marry. And the men say basically the same thing. They either marry or are given in marriage. Angels are not that way. They are, although the Bible always speaks of them in masculine terms, they are really genderless created creatures. that do not procreate. Another little issue I have with this problem, with this interpretation, is when you look at God's condemnation of this, in this incident, he's not condemning the angels that fell and cohabited. He's condemning who? The humans. It's the humans that are involved in the sin that he's bringing judgment against. In my opinion, it is better to view the sons of God in this passage as offspring of godly parents, professing believers who, though still sinful, could easily marry an unsaved spouse. Does that ever happen? <coughs> Excuse me. Such an individual can still be considered a child of God, a son of God, but have an unsaved spouse. And that's in keeping with the overall sweep of the context, comparing the ungodly descendants of Cain in chapter 4 and the godly descendants of Seth in chapter 5, and answers the unasked question of chapter 5. You have all these godly descendants of Seth, and it says in every single time, they also had sons and daughters, after it talks about the significant child that they had, the significant to the genealogy. And then says, and then they had sons and daughters, which, by the way, if anybody asks you, Cain killed Abel, right? Where did Cain get his wife? Frankly, he married his sister, which is not uncommon back then, even as far as Abraham, who married his half-sister. So... The question, the unasked question of chapter 5 is, what happened to all the brothers and sisters and cousins if all these descendants of Seth, we know of one for sure that was godly, what about all his brothers and sisters? What about all the cousins? Where are they? Because in chapter 7, we see how many people going into the ark? Eight people. There were millions. If you, if you, get, if you increase the birth rate, 
and decrease the death rate, you could mathematically have millions upon millions of people on the face of the earth in 1,565 years. What happened to them? What happened to the testimony of the true God in these people's lives? Well, I'm suggesting to you that this is the first step in a path that leads to judgment. When believers fail to live up to the godly standards they profess to believe, and instead they adopt the characteristics of those who hate God. In our day and age, we have a very similar thing. What happens when, and this can happen with, with uh, uh, young men as well as young women, what happens when a, when a young person has their sole criteria for selecting their life's partner is she's pretty or he's cute. Now, is there anything wrong with being physically attractive? Of course not. But if that's the sole criteria why I would choose a wife, oh, she's pretty. Who cares about whether she loves God? Who cares about what standard she lives? She's pretty. I'm heading up the wrong path. I'm depend. I'm putting my life and my testimony into severe danger. It, as I've lived my Christian life, I have seen once or twice where an unsa a saved individual marries an unsaved individual and that eventually that unsaved person gets saved and they start living for... I have seen that but I've seen the vast majority of times when that circumstance happens, the testimony of the believer is compromised. And their stand for the Lord and for the truth of Scripture is degraded. When a different standard becomes evident in the marriage, such a marriage, how is it usually resolved? Again, it's rare that the, the believing spouse stands up for the truth when conflict of this type arises. Who then influences the children to come along? The one who will influence them away from the, following the Lord. Because it's... Remember... We're all sinners by nature. That cute little baby is a sinner and easily deposed to go away from the Lord. Which way will they naturally head? To come to the Lord or go away from the Lord? That's the natural way of doing things. And again, there are exceptions to that. And praise the Lord for every exception. But 
the vast majority of times, there's trouble. In every doctrine, in every practical matter of life, there must be balance. This is one of the things that I spoke to, I've spoken to John many times about. It, the, way I, the way I view all doctrine, all practice, I use the example of the head of a drum. A head of a drum is stretched across the opening of that drum, being pulled equally on all sides to make it tight. So it is with every doctrine or every practice that we hold. If we are not aware of and feel attention of two opposing thoughts, we have an imbalance. And we're not going to ring right. And let me give you an example. We were talking a little bit earlier about um, just the, the theme came up about legalism and, and right standards and godly standards. And so often we associate holy life Godly standards with a legalistic approach to living the Christian life. You have to do this and you have to wear this and you have to, to follow these prescribed positions. Ladies, woe unto you if you are slacks to church. Oh, how terrible! You wicked sinners! And why are rim glasses? No, they have to be plastic. Now, we're certainly not going to prescribe rules and regulations by which to live. But does that mean that we are free to do whatever we want? Of course not. We as individuals are individually standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. And someday we will stand eyeball to eyeball with him to give an account of what we do. And part of that will be, given, will be giving account for why we did the things that we did. Why we allowed the things that we allowed. Why we followed the practices we practiced. Why we believed the doctrines that we did. We can't be legalistic about it and make all these rules, but we can't be libertine about it either. Those two opposites have to stretch that drumhead. And we have to feel the tension between those two positions in order to live effectively. Very good little book by Dr. Ryrie, Balancing the Christian Life. It's important to keep a balance in life, walking moment by moment.
So when we examine what we do, first examine our hearts. Am I walking with the Lord? Do I truly, is this an expression of my love for the Lord? Because if you ask yourself, if you have a specific activity that you're going to allow yourself to do, and you ask yourself a question, is this an expression of my love for the Lord? Can I say I love the Lord in the middle of doing whatever? Is that going to be congruous? Is that going to be, can I honestly say, yeah, I love the Lord and do such and such a thing? We need to examine ourselves and ensure our primary motive is love to the Lord and then order the actions and standards of our lives desiring to please only Him. We must strive to hold fast to and contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And, then, and we have to examine what we believe. Again, we are admonished to get, be ready to give an answer to every man that asks us a reason of the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear. Why do I believe why do I believe myself that God created the world in 6 days and rested the 7th day about 6000 years ago Cuz there are many in our day and age who be, who are true believers I don't doubt their salvation one bit godly men who you take them out of Genesis 1 through 11 and put them in the rest of the Bible, and you'd love to listen to them. Tremendous Bible teachers. But the only but the problem is when they interpret Genesis 1 through 11, they hold a different way of interpreting that when, when you get in then when they get into for example, Matthew 28, or, or Mark 16, or Luke 24, or John 20. By the way, what do those passage, passages talk about? Matthew 28, John 20. <laughs> the resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to go and ask any scientist whether he believes that people rise from the dead, what would he say? No. What scientific proof can you show me that, that people who have died rose, rise from the dead? Yet we believe it, don't we? Why do we believe it? Because God said it in the Word, that's why. But if God says in the Word that He created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that in them is in six days, why do we not believe it? Because some scientist somewhere says, oh, it happened millions and millions and millions of years ago. Was he there? Can he make mistakes? Can he out and out lie? 
Was God there? Can he make mistakes? Can he out and out lie? Who would you rather believe? And as a result, a result of the church at large failing to believe what God says in his word, we're losing the testimony. What did the Lord Jesus Christ, how did the Lord Jesus Christ describe his disciples? Ye are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, right? But if the salt hath left its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? If we fail to preserve the truth of Scripture to our generation, how have we helped our generation? We've opened the door. And this is, this is my argument. This is my passion, really. When true believers look at Genesis 1 through 11, or Exodus 20, verse 7, which says what? Yeah. For, and what's it say? And in 6... For in six days God created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that in them is, and rested on the Sabbath, Sabbath day. And God wrote that with his hand. Did he lie? Did he condescend to the simple, primitive understanding of the people in his day? In that day? And just create a story that does not fit with history? Just so he, they could believe something? Is that really what God did? Or did God relate the truth as it's written? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. In verses 37 and 38. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. When the salt loses its savor... When the church fails to live for the Lord, 
Who is there to bring the testimony of the truth of the word of God in front of them? To confront the people of our day with the truth of the word. Who's going to do it? They're going to be completely unaware of the existence of God, of the justice of God, of the holiness of God, of the love of God. So the first thing the culture does is ignore God. They live their lives through doing the normal daily routine, never once thinking about God. Again, what did the Lord Jesus say? They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Was there anything wrong with any of those activities? No, of course not. But they're wrong if they're done with no, no thought of God. I, I was, as I was driving this morning, I, I drive past the, I live on Rich Valley, off of Rich Valley Road, and I drive up, and there's a golf course right there, and there were people in the rain with their, with their coats on, in the rain, about ready to tee off. Ignoring God, right? Well, maybe they went to a service yesterday. I can't judge them. But it reminded me of the, the man who led me to the Lord was when he got saved, he was preparing to be a, tennis, a professional tennis player. He was quite a tennis player. And he got saved, and, and a week that Sunday, after he got saved, he did his normal thing, which was to go to the tennis courts. And he said, you don't know the conviction you come over when you toss a ball into the air to serve it and you're looking up to God. And he says, you should be in church. Because... The thing is, we all have a tendency, particularly when things are going easy, to think we're independent. We can, we can exist without any help. Have you ever had somebody, when you're witness to them, saying, say to you that, oh, you believe in God because you're weak? You need a crutch? Well... They just haven't come across their own weakness yet. Or they've refused to admit it. Because that state never lasts. Our natural selfishness soon takes over and the culture deteriorates all the more. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Because, what does it say? In verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. You ever said your days are numbered? Has anybody ever mentioned that? 
God is saying, these people's days are numbered. Because in 120 years, the judgment's going to fall. From this point... Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This is the second thing that some commentators get hung up on, thinking that the sons of God were fallen angels, Many commentators suggest that these uh, Nephilim were some sort of mutant superhumans because they are uh, the offspring of angels and humans. Well, uh, maybe you know, an early version of the X-Men. You know, they, could, they had to open a visor and, and the light comes out. And... Well, the word used here that is transliterated in this, in this version, Nephilim, in the King James, it's just translated giants. The word here is used only here and in Numbers chapter, uh, I'm getting dyslexic here, 1333, I was going to say 3313, and that didn't make sense. It's 1333. It's used twice in, no, in the Numbers passage and here. Only three times in the Old Testament is this particular word used. And the word it means to fall. The root of the word means to fall. And the idea is that of the Hebrew idiom for somebody to fall upon their enemy. To kill them. In the Numbers passage, this is talking about men who are called the sons of Anak, who were great warriors, a la Goliath of Gath. So in this passage, these were men who were of great ability, great strength. They had earned a reputation as great warriors, as did the sons of Anak much later. When you have a number of great military and political leaders, you pretty soon have competition. And the competition ends in warfare. And the warfare results in revenge attacks, in fighting constantly. Have you ever thought about the job of an NFL coach? Here you have men, big, strong, fast, capable men who have been doted on since they were young boys because of their, phys their physical prowess that they, they show. And what does that do to the ego of a, of a young man? When everything in life comes easily. 
And everybody pays attention to them as if, as an 18-year-old, your, your opinion counts for something. Excuse me for uh, the young people in, in our uh, group here, because you have a long way to grow up. And in reality, there's a lot of life that you have to experience yet. But all these men are thrown together to compete against one another. And you have egos. And you have people that, that uh, have never had to struggle to be the big man on, on campus. And now all of a sudden they're the, the little fish in a big pond. And what happens to them? Well, again, you have... The pecking order develops. You have to make sure that this individual personality is, is boosted and you have to build up this personality here or put them down a little bit. One of the biggest parts of being an NFL coach is to, to manage per personalities. So everybody is working as a team rather than a group of individuals. That's somewhat akin to what's happening here. You have men of great stature, possibly, of great power, of enormous ability, militarily. Again, have you ever been involved with Men who are successful in war, who are would be great wartime heroes, quite often they're useless in normal society because we don't need somebody to beat somebody up. We don't need somebody who is ready to kill anybody who walks in front of them. These were men of great power, great strength, great ability. Attacking each other, fighting with each other. When something doesn't go my way, what do I do? Do I submit? Or is submission a bad word? They fight all the harder. Because that personality that can prevail in war needs that ability to persevere through all sorts of hardships and difficulties and trials so they can persevere. And on top of that, what's it say here? God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Culture continues to devolve. It continues to go downhill. And do you see the, the, the superlatives 
in that phrase, every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. There wasn't a single good thought that went through the minds of these people. Why? Because the believers in that day failed to stand up to them and to stand up for what was right. Solomon, Solomon recognized it a long time ago. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Because what you think about, pretty soon you're going to act out. And that's true whether you're saved or unsaved. It doesn't matter. These people were only thinking about wicked thoughts. How to gain superiority over the end of it. How to get revenge of somebody in the end of it. How to take what that other person has. And the inevitable slide of a sinful culture into greater depths of depravity so that in a little over 1,500 years, like I said, in the culture at large, there was not one good, decent thought. Is our world getting more and more violent? I think so. Do you remember, you, those of you who uh, are uh, dandelions that have gone to seed, do you remember when the worst thing that could happen to a person in school was they were chewing gum? Horrible, wasn't it? Or when a young man was driving, driving his car, had a gun rack in the, in the back, and he brought a gun to school so he could go, to, go out hunting after school. You never did that, did you, Mark? <laughs> Who would have thought that in 30 years... Our schools would be scenes of mass murder. That we would have to enforce a drug-free zone around them. Of course, there were, there were the really bad kids that between class smoked in the, in the lavatory. They, they, were, they were the really, really, really bad kids. And you, get, and you go into the lab between, between classes and you had to cut through the smoke. But as soon as a teacher would walk in, you'd hear all the, the commodes flush. In 2001, I went back into aviation after a 25-year hiatus. And I was surprised at how much had changed in, avi in, just in aviation in general, over that 25-year, almost 30-year time span. 
A lot of regulations changed. A lot of, of security changed. In the past 11 years since I've been back in it, it's changed more, three times more than it did in the 30 years I was out. Does anybody fly? Enjoy the TSA uh, searching you? You ever have to stand in the x-ray machine and get the full, full body scan x-ray? Take off your shoes? Probably Bev doesn't have to worry about it because she ha she's, has this detail covered. But uh, you ever notice people with holes in their socks when they walk through the line and their shoes off? Ladies would never even consider having holes in their socks or stockings in a situation like that. But at any rate. Let me be bold and say that the increase in violence in our day is in large measure due to the failure of the church in general. And us as Christians in particular to be the salt and the light that we are commissioned to be. Now I know that ultimately the cause is the sinful nature in all of us and that each sinner alone bears a responsibility for his or her actions. But when you and I fail to witness to our co-workers, fail to live a strong and vibrant testimony of salvation, waffle when asked about what we believe, or fail to give an answer of the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear, we contribute to the decline of the culture. And we bring our culture that much closer to the judgment of God. In the few minutes that we have left... Let's look at uh, verses 7 and 13. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And the son, the Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Chapters 6 through 8. We talked about chapters 4 through 6. Now 6 through 8 deal with the 120-year preparation for a 375-day flood, worldwide flood. It was not merely a rain event. Don't think of it as merely 
Like Bill Cosby says, it rained hard until the sewers backed up. It was a global tectonic catastrophe. Worldwide earthquakes that broke up the one supercontinent into the seven continents we see today. Volcanic eruptions that occurred throughout the world, particularly along what we now call the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which spans from Greenland to Antarctica. Can you see a line of volcanoes that whole length? Not one square inch of dry land was to be found for nearly a year. Not so much sediment being stripped and redeposited that the layers are miles thick in some places and extend hundreds of thousands of square miles, even across continents. Not a single tree, plant, or blade of grass remained in place during the flood. And the only air-breathing land animals, I have to specify that because, I mean, the ones that were in the water stayed in the water. Noah didn't bring whales and porpoises on board. But the only animals that survived this event were the ones God brought into the ark. And once it was over, only Noah and his family were the only humans left on the face of the earth. Every single person alive at that time that was not inside the ark, died. Now put this in perspective. If a relatively small earthquake off the coast of Indonesia a few years ago caused such a horrible tidal wave and destruction, imagine the destruction that happened when the entire seafloor raised and forced then contents, the complete contents of the ocean onto, onto the land. That's one reason why we find marine fossils near the top of Mount Everest. Another reason is Mount Everest wasn't nearly that high at the time. When God's judgment falls, the only ones who survive are in His graciously provided means of escape, the ark. And I'll just mention this and we'll mention it again in a little bit. Jesus is our ark. What about our day and age? Turn 
Again, back to Matthew 24. And look at verse 22. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Stop and think about that. What is the Lord Jesus saying here? This whole context is talking about the tribulation period. The whole... The, the conditions on the face of the earth at the end of the tribulation are so horrific that unless the Lord Jesus comes back and stops it, life would cease to exist on the face of the earth. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of God's plan for the tribulation and also for the final destruction of the world. As Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3. When you look back in the book of the look in the book of Revelation and you begin to add up the total number of Numbered people who died. This is just the, the sections that say X amount of people died. So many percentage. One third of the earth. When you just add that up, and it doesn't include the ones that says X a number of people died. When you add it up, four out of every five people alive at the beginning of the tribulation will not see the end. We have 6 billion people in the earth now. That's pushing 5 billion deaths within 7 years. God will judge this world. Our God is both living, loving and kind beyond all measure. And he's also pure and just to demand justice for sins and rebellions that, that have been committed against him. If we reject the only means of redemption that he has provided, we have nothing more to look forward to than his just wrath poured out without measure. what more can we say if you're not saved if you can't know for sure that you can stand in front of the Lord Jesus Christ look him square in the eye and say I know I'm saved if you can't say that don't delay any longer Paul tells us in 2nd Corinthians for he hath said I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't think you have tomorrow. Let 
Lessons for our lives. Number one. God's word is true from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Don't fall into the trap that we can treat parts of it as less authoritative than others. There are poetic sections, of course, that cannot be taken literally. I mean, the, feet, the, trees, the leaves of the trees shall not clap their hands literally. That's a poetic expression. But Hebrew poetry is very easily recognized gram grammatically. It's a completely different grammatical uh, structure in poetry than it is in, in historical narrative. If you're going to doubt the Word of God because of the opinion of unsaved people, you're going to open the door to doubting of all Scripture when it becomes unpopular. And we could document that in individuals' lives, in the lives of institutions, in the lives of individual churches, when once they open up the door to doubting the Scripture, they open up the door to a slippery slope of unbelief. And again, who would you rather believe? Men who weren't there, who don't know everything, who make mistakes, who can out and out lie, or the God who is, was there, who knows all things, who can neither make a mistake nor lie. Number two. Down through history, it's been the failure of God's people to fulfill God's purpose for their lives that has led to the demise of previously God-fearing society. Let us make sure that we're not part of that failure. In my previous church, I had a, a little... Little old lady, she was invalid. She hardly got out. But all her life, she handed out Bible tracts. She witnessed everybody that she could possibly witness to. And when she got so to the point where she couldn't go outside anymore, she had such a burning desire to witness to people that she would act on windy days, she would throw tracts out the, out the window hoping that somebody would pick it up and read it. She witnessed every, every single individual who came into her house to, to service her TV or, or whatever got witness to. Lovely, lovely, godly woman. Who's in glory now. Number three, God is just. He must judge sin. He cannot frankly forgive the wicked. God has judged throughout history and those events serve as warnings of future judgment. 
God's loving kindness can only withhold his judgment for so long. The whole flood narrative not only records the true events of history, but also the ark. Like I mentioned before, the ark is a picture of the salvation in Christ Jesus. For 120 years, Noah, who's called a preacher of righteousness, Noah and a handful of his contemporaries preached salvation and impending judgment, not only vocally, but also with a huge object lesson standing behind them. Then one day, God's patience ended, and he called Noah and his family into the ark. If you look at the narrative, it's when God called Noah, he said, come into the ark. He didn't say, go into the ark. He said, come into the ark, because he was already there. And then he shut the door. At that point, judgment was inevitable. There was no longer any opportunity for any human on the face of the earth to be saved. What a terrible thought. But that day's coming again. Sometime in the near future, God's grace for salvation will be withdrawn. And his judgment will fall on those who are oblivious to his love, his grace, and his presence. We don't know when that day will be. It might be today. We do know, of course, that many, 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 many people will be saved during the tribulation time, and we praise the Lord for that but also many who have heard and rejected the truth will receive the lie. And I implore you today, most everybody here is saved, and I praise the Lord for that. If you do not know and are not assured of your salvation, don't go through those doors without talking to one of the elders, to me. Behold, now is accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Our Lord God and our Heavenly Father, you are God, and we're your creation. You have called us to, to follow you, to believe you, to worship and serve you. And we praise you for that. Empower us by your spirit to do so acceptably. That we might see souls who, like us, 
who were not saved at one time are not saved now. We pray that we would get opportunity, take opportunity, and witness to those folks and that they too might be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for your patience with us this summer as we've tried a lot of new music. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, John 3.16. How deep the Father's love for us. Please stand and join.